so stupid, he comes across in front of me every single time he ever takes. Where does he want me to go off the track? No! Stop talking to me in the breaking zone! New main event announced for WrestleMania 33. Sebastian Vell versus Daniel Kavir in a no handbags box. Welcome back to Motorsport 101. Good evening, everybody. I am Andre Harrison, and welcome to episode 36 of Motorsport 101. It's a glorious uh, 8.30 p.m. evening here uh, as we record this new episode. As ever, alongside Mr. Adam Johnson. Good evening. We seem to be getting later and later by the week in terms of recording. We'll be we'll be literally pulling the all-night session soon. We're, I like to think we're recording this. <laughs> number one, we're recording this on American time because we are basically all American. Um, of course. And two, we're recording this in the slot I like to call, I have an excuse to stay off Twitter and avoid raw London spoilers. So we're all ah. good. That's a, that's as good a reason as any, right there. Quite frankly, and yes, I do pretty. I do pretty much live on American time, so like, <laughs> I, I, I'm not even denying this for a second. Quite frankly, um, and in the Holland, the actual American, Mr. Ryan King. Hello, sir. Yeah, wait a second. I need to secure my ride away from Rio Harriato, so I'll be back. <laughs> He's, he's gone out to start a Text crowdfunding SMS campaign. Now. Yeah. Text an SMS now, and you will pledge three pounds a month to get Ryan King into a manor seat. <laughs> the world is the world is not ready for Ryan King in an actual Formula One guys. He's probably the best driver ever. We just don't know it yet because he's oh just that yeah. fucking clever. Yeah. <laughs> and my, my, sna- swear, my Snapchats are gonna be guaranteed better than Lewis's. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> FOM ain't shutting me down. <laughs> Straight fire. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> Ryan King out here saying smash the system. Uh, <laughs> he's a rebel without a cause. He'll be dropping CM Punk pipe bombs from in the paddock the paddock pipe <laughs> paddock pipe bomb yeah he's, he's gonna scrout to romaine grosjean and take no shit um also that's 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 two that's 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 two pounds in the swear jar now Ching. god damn it dry <laughs> yeah it, it keeps going up to nine pounds already after three episodes <laughs> this, is, this is not this is not a good start this is gonna get expensive if this keeps up uh, as i was saying yeah episode 36 is a lengthy one and there's a lot to talk about actually we'll be opening up with a breaking news moto gp story what it was at the time of recording anyway by the time you're listening to this it won't have been but uh, yes he has he's actually gone and done the damn thing jorge lorenzo is a ducati rider for 2017 he listened we'll to talk us. about this he listened to our yeah, show he, yeah, I, I like I like to take credit for this. Like the only reason he is joined because he learned he listened to the wisdom of Adam Johnson and therefore he thought Ducati was the right move. Way to go, Adam. Way to go. You'll thank me later, Jorge. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I want to cut of the profits, quite frankly. Um, <laughs> uh, pledge to our Patreon. We'll get you a free T-shirt. Um, yeah, we had the Formula One Chinese Grand Prix this last past weekend. And Nico Rosberg wins again. His sixth consecutive race win. Only the fourth driver in the history of the sport to win six races in a row. Went do- a dominant 38-second victory over Sebastian Vettel in second place. And we'll be talking about his beef with Daniil Kvyat in the arguably most overrated big news story to come out of the Chinese Grand Prix since, well, ever, really. Um, Seven the Wars again, but we'll talk about that as well. And, oh, oh, there was some actual beef between Romain Grosjean and Marcus Ericsson. 
just just imagine a French word swear. Just just imagine a Frenchman swearing like an Englishman. That's pretty much what what Romain Grosjean did. We'll talk about that later. We'll talk about Lewis Hamilton, who's now thirty six points off of Nico Rosberg in the championship fight, and uh, with Toto Wolff already backing Hamilton to back that lead up, we ask: Is Hamilton already out of the running? Hmm. See that? See that? That that's fake drama. I mean, it means you'll listen in later. Uh, so we'll also be talking about some other stories outside of the Chinese Grand Prix, such as Rio Harianto going back to the crowdfunding circus. That's sure to go over well. We'll talk about Alfa Romeo and the possibility that they may be buying out Sauber and more negative press regarding the team going forward. Um, we'll also talk about the fact that this race was the lowest watched Formula One race for a decade, which is uh, very intriguing indeed. And more draconian FOM activity as they're going after gift makers. Yes, this Those is actually dastardly gift makers. They're taking money out of the company's pockets, Johnson. This is Who like that you? poem, isn't it? First they came yeah. for the modders and we said nothing. Then they went after Rides and Studios, and we did nothing. Then they went after the gift makers, and we said nothing. <laughs> Actually, we said Next a lot because we're Motorsport 101. Yeah. Next, I'll be coming after this podcast. Wait, let's move on quickly. Uh, <laughs> we'll, also be talking, we'll be talking about IndyCar as well. They had the Grand yesterday as Simon Pagino took his first ever win for the Penske team. In controversial fashion, we'll be talking in depth about Cutgate and why Paul Tracy is a meathead. Um, we'll also be talking about the context of Pagano's first win and has he finally put it all together? And the other big story coming out of IndyCar this past week, the universal consensus by a lot of the drivers, there was really a lot universal, that's a bad choice of words there, only a higher thesaurus. Anyway, we'll be talking about how Joseph Newgarden, Tony Kanaan, Graham Riggle, and James Hinchcliffe all pretty much said in unison that the race was boring and they're calling for change. We'll be talking about that. I'll give you a hint. It may or may not have something to do with the aero kits. Just a thought. And finally, we'll also be talking about the esports potential of Formula One itself after AOR's big season finale yesterday, which I'm sure many of you listening to this probably watched last night. 750 people tuned in for an F1 2013 race on Twitch. That's pretty mental. So that and inevitably much more in this upcoming episode of Motorsport 101. And we will begin with, at the time of recording, a breaking news story, Johnson. Like I said, he's done He's, he's done the damn thing. Jorge Lorenzo has signed a two-year deal to join Ducati. And... Well, AJ, I think this this was, I think, kind of expected. It is, I think there was too many rumors going around for this not to have at least an air of truth about it. But today, we found that it was an official announcement. It's a two-year deal for Lorenzo and Ducati. And uh, I think we're all pretty much unanimously saying it seems like the right thing to do. Absolutely. I mean, this there's a difference between why call... Um, Audi rumors, as in rumors that just keep coming up out of nowhere because people want them to be true. Uh, and the reason why I call it the Audi rumors is because I base it off the whole Audi to F1 rumors that went around for about two years straight, oh, yeah, yeah. even though there was never any proof that anything was ever going to happen. It was literally based on my mate's cousin's granddad told me that someone he knows at Audi's next door neighbors, something or other. And then you've got the no smoke without fire type rumours like the Lorenzo one, as we've seen, where it just keeps coming up and too many decent sources keep saying, you know, when you've got Motorcycle News and David Emmett of Moto Matters breaking constant stories about how this could be a deal and how it's coming together, it, it's it's almost too much to ignore. And I think what's interesting is that we all agree that this ultimately 
could be the best move that Lorenzo could ever make. Um, it relies on Ducati stepping up, but I think ultimately, what has Lorenzo got to lose at this point? If he wins mm-hmm. another title on a Yamaha, we agreed. Not really going to do much to his legacy. And hey, he's still going to be playing number two to the Valentino Rossi circus. So why not go to the Ducati and maybe put himself down as an all-time legend? Yeah, absolutely. And obviously a big shout out to David Emmett over at Motor Matters. He was the lead he was the lead source for this story pretty much all the way through. If you're a bike fan, you're not following David Emmett on Twitter at Motor Matters. I don't know what you're doing with your life because he is a fantastic source, a great writer, great journalist. He does everything the right way. Mm. And I've said it before, MotoGP's press department is a lot better than Formula 1's. I've said this time and time again. The F1 press makes up half its crap. Like MotoGP, the people who know, know. And they really do. And again, David was a great source of information regarding this. And I, I can't disagree with anything Johnson said, really. I look at this like... It's, it's a game-changing move for Lorenzo, and I think one that he needs to make for his own self-esteem. We all know he's arguably the best rider on, on, on the planet today. He's won three championships with with Yamaha. He spent the last, what, he debuted there 2007, I want to say. So he's done eight years with them already, as it is. He's, this will be his ninth year with Yamaha. Um, and for the vast majority of those years... It was it was the Valentino Rossi entourage, and it still is by the sounds of it, because you know the man is gospel. Whatever he says, people listen, and that's just the nature of the sport that you know has had him as its most prominent figure for arguably fifteen years now. And you know, the only time where I think you know, the team really was Lorenzo's is when Ben Spees was his teammate. Sorry, King. Uh, that, probably, that probably brings up painful memories of the Ben Spees era at Yamaha, but uh, <laughs> we need more Americans in the sport, clearly. But um, King, I, I mean, I can only echo what Johnson said. I think it's a great move for him. I think the potential there is huge. I think, you know, having the extra money is, is, is you know, can't hurt either. I think like, there isn't really, for me, a, a major negative behind this move. And I feel like, you know, he's got nothing to lose and potentially everything to gain by doing this. Yeah, I mean, I have to agree with both of you. I think where to look now is what next? Who's going to be his teammate at Ducati? Because apparently Ducati is not getting a third bike. So one of the drivers, I mean, one of the riders currently at Ducati is getting the sack. And Mm. who's replacing Jorge Lorenzo at Yamaha. And apparently everyone, including yourself last week, says Maverick Vinales is probably going to get that get that seat next year. Although didn't Bike Live's Lewis Sudderby pitch an alternative suggestion of uh, Espargaro? Paul Espargaro? Yeah, he, yeah, because, yeah, uh, Paul, Paul Espargaro is, is a rider that, when he's joined MotoGP after he won the Moto team, the year afterwards, he was given a Yamaha factory contract with the team when he got debut, which pissed off Bradley Smith a great deal because Bradley was was there at the time already because he was Crutchlow's partner. Um, was it Crutchlow's? Yeah, it was, it was, I think it was Crutchlow's teammate at the time, basically. And what happened was, was that, Bradley felt like he was kicked to the curb when he felt like he could have had a potential to be on that seat because Spagaro came in um, and was given a factory deal, but which, which basically everybody at that point penciled in him, penciled him in as the future Rossi replacement because Rossi was on the last year of his current deal at, the, at, that, at that point in time anyway. So it all seemed to make sense that Spagaro was going to be the next guy. 
And he still could be the next guy for all we know, because Paul's actually had a very good start to the 2016 season. He seems to have bounced back after what was a pretty poor 2015 campaign where Bradley Smith beat him to, from pillar to post pretty much. So the theory that Lewis made on Twitter, you can follow him, my bike life partner in crime, at Lewis Sutterby 23 must follow, by the way. Um, it was a very sound theory, in my opinion, where you know he, he, he was basically saying that Paul gets the seat Lorenzo leaves behind for the time being, and that would free the way for Alex Rins to potentially go to Tech 3 and wait for a Rossi retirement, and then Rins gets the seat. And the next thing you know, Yamaha's got a partnership of Espagaro and Rins, and it's a very dangerous-looking team. You have Espagaro as the more experienced name, and you have Rins as the potential young hotshot. Um I, I th- it makes sense, Johnson, but I think Maverick's just too big a prospect to ignore. That could be your franchise guy for the next decade. I, I, th- I think it's too big a golden carrot for Yamaha to ignore at this point. See, I feel like a lot of this is going to come down to just how much power Rossi has over the new guy coming in. If it's Agreed. more focused on developmental, if it's more focused on a number two rider, then I don't know. Does that swing it towards the Spagaro? It depends on, to a degree, you know, if it feels like, it depends to a degree on just how much would be an immediate threat to Rossi. But Vinales would be as a supreme talent. And then if you bring Rins into the equation once Rossi's gone, um, that's a supreme like lineup for the next few years. But I mean, is there any way that they shuffle a Spagaro out so that slot at Tet 3 is still able to be filled by Rins, but they bring Vinales in as well? It's almost like there's too many young prospects to move around. Mm. This almost feels to me like... The Formula One silly season we could have had last year had Kimi Raikkonen retired at the end of last year or left Ferrari. We were all mm-hmm. wondering just who would be the one to move up to Ferrari and then who would move in at Haas or Sauber or wherever. In the end, Raikkonen ex- extended his deal. None of that happened. Now we've mm. got Lorenzo, who's left probably the best overall team in, in MotoGP right now. You've got the prospect of being teammate to Rossi, of all people. And it's suddenly setting this. I mean, this could be a total like um, domino effect. This could set off a real Absolutely. chain effect. So it's interesting. I think, who do you choose on raw pace, Dre? Are you feeling Vinales? I think, see, here's the thing. Like, I think the 2016 rules which have come into effect this year with the Michelin tyres and the... Um, standardized electronics for the for the entire field i think it's just made the factory gap all the bigger between them and the satellite team so i feel like maverick going to tech three might actually be a step backwards which is amazing when you consider that tech three right now have basically got the same bike lorenzo won the championship with just six months ago which is just crazy when it comes to how far progression uh, the, the field has made already despite this despite these new packages and new tires and whatnot but on raw pace, I feel like Maverick is a better prospect going forward. I think he, the fact he's five years younger than Paul is a big plus as well for a team because if he's going to be loyal to the team, your window is so much bigger with Maverick than it is with Paul, with Paul Spagaro. And like the black mark against Paul is that he was beaten really badly by Bradley Smith last season. So for me... If I'm Lynn Jarvis right now, I'm giving Maverick a a, a call saying, how, like, what's it going to take? Quite frankly, like, like, how much money do we have to throw at you to lock you down for a three or four year deal? Quite frankly, which is kind of rare for Melody because normally it's a two year deal we get in MotoGP. They, mm. they they like to think in the short term. You don't normally get a one or a two year kind of deal. It's like the NFL way or the NBA where they'll tie you down to five year, hundred plus million dollar contracts. It's not like that in MotoGP. You're lucky if a contract goes beyond two years. Mm. Um, so. 
For me, I think it's Maverick. I know King alluded to Ian Oni yesterday because he thinks Ian Oni might get the chop out of that. So basically, whoever Ducati cut, Yamaha could snipe. And especially if it's Dovi, because I think Dovi is universally respected as like one of the best developmental riders you could have. But he's, he's excellent when it comes to rider feedback. So there's another prospect as well. I mean, King, is your opinion swayed on this? Are you still adamant on the whoever gets cut from Ducati camp on this? Yeah, I'm... I'm- Still adamant on whoever gets cut from Ducati because Rossi is still Rossi. Yeah, it's a very good point. Like, like, like I know. I also want to give a shout out to Danny Brennan about this because Brennan mentioned this on the chat in the last episode, and he said, and he had a very fair point about Paul Espargaro because mostly for the reason of he doesn't think Paul's good enough to beat Valentino anyway, and he he's thinking. I'm guessing if I'm using his logic, a reminder of the Honda camp right now. With obviously that bike is obviously. Marquez's entity and Marquez is just that frigging good right now and Pedrosa is basically a accidental number two in the sense of he'll clean up the mess of, uh, of, of, of a Marquez if he goes wrong and he'll still pick up solid points he may even win on the odd occasion but we all know it's Marquez's team really and Pedrosa is like the beatable number two that's not really going to be a threat to the main guy um I mentioned this before as well about how often having two title contenders in the same team may often be counterproductive because they beat each other up and they let somebody else come through. Um, so I, I think King makes a valid point. I think Johnson kind of alluded to the same thing, really. I think, you know, riders that could upset Rossi's apple cart is probably going to be off the table. And who knows just how good Maverick Vinales really is. That's, I mean, he's had a fan, he's done fantastic work on that Suzuki. I mean, we mentioned it last week. It was a career high finish in fourth place at Kota uh, last weekend. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of potential prospects on the table. Again, if now the deal is done again, feel free to comment on the stream. If you guys have an opinion on this, I'd love to hear you guys take on the whole thing. Cause there's so many different ways you can look at it again. Like I said last week and, who knows what could go on there? Right. Uh, as Johnson just in the chat, we've already gone nearly 20 minutes. God damn it. Uh, these things go quick. Um, so Formula One, and we're going to talk about the Chinese Grand Prix. And uh, holy crap, Nico Rosberg is on a tear right now. He is ridiculous. And I mentioned this uh, in, in the intro as well, that uh, this, is, this is the sixth consecutive win for, for Nico Rosberg. He's only the fourth driver ever to have done this. Michael Schumacher um, had a six-race winning streak at, at, at his prime in 2004. Uh, Alberto Ascari has a seven-race winning streak, and obviously Sebastian Vettel is the all-time leader there with nine in the 2013 season. But, uh, King, how smug are you right now being a known <laughs> Rosberg fan that your boy has, has actually made a bit of history and has now got six consecutive wins on the table? Oh, he, he also made another bit of history. He is, is now the winningest driver to not win a championship or yep. let's just say yet to win a championship. Oh, <laughs> King, are you calling the shot right here? <laughs> um, oh, I, I, I really want to, but the more, you know, rational side of my brain is saying, no, don't be silly. That is stupid. We're only three races in. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 that's the funny thing about it, as I mentioned earlier in the show. Rosberg now has a 36-point lead on Lu- He's never had 36 points on how any point during the three and a bit years they've been together in Formula One. Rosberg now 36 points clear of Lewis Hamilton, almost outscoring him two to one so far, which, is, which again, you would never imagine uh, um, us saying that two years ago when, when, when Hamilton was on a tear and won 11 races in 2014. And just like this, just like that, Johnson, like, 
Hamilton's had a, obviously a, a, had a bad run of form in terms mm. of you know outside incidents and whatnot having an impact on the race. Obviously, in Australia, he was barged out at turn one a little bit, was a little bit unlucky where that's concerned. Um, in Bahrain, again, he was given the power driver by Valtteri Bottas and you know, that crippled his car. He had to limp home in third. This time again, engine failure in, uh, not engine failure, but engine issues in qualifying, which forced him to start from the back and had to come through to finish in seventh and again had a damaged car. The floor was damaged because Felipe Nasa hit him on, on turn one. So Hamilton's had a bad run of form, but even so, Rosberg is, is, is flying right now, Johnson. It's, well, it's incredibly impressive. The the absolutely crucial thing to keep in mind here is that, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, Hamilton's had a bad run of form. And yes, he has. Things have not fallen his way. Ever since he got that miserable launch off the line in Australia, things just haven't clicked so far for Hamilton. But here's the absolutely crucial part. What Rosberg is doing now that he wasn't able to do before is maximizing his chances when Hamilton has an off day. The thing is, in 2014 and mm. 2015, when Hamilton did have an off day, Rosberg normally did as well. Like, for example, in Singapore, when Hamilton was well off the pace, so was Rosberg. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm trying to think, like Hungary, for example, you know, at that race, that was a race where Hamilton had mistakes. He got wrapped up in instance. He was off in the gravel on the first lap. That was a that race was that Rosberg should have... Yeah, he was. He had an awful day. Rosberg should have won that race. I don't. Did he even get the podium? I want to say Rosberg, he got like second or third in the end. Rosberg finished eighth that day. Hamilton I, finished sixth. Like exactly. Was, there you go. There's your prime example. That was a day where Rosberg had to win, and he actually ended up finishing behind Hamilton in his worst performance of the year. So mm. this is the big difference now. Rosberg is finally being able to nail the points on the board when they, he's finally got that really kind of clinical streak about him which is what Hamilton's had the last few years he's finally got that really nice like nail your start nail your strategy don't make any silly mistakes just take control of the race and make it your own it doesn't matter I mean in this race in China he actually got beaten by Ricardo off the line and he was around him within a few laps and away and he was gone I mean of course Ricardo had a puncher even so you could tell Rosberg was was right there and he had the pace but Mm. it just feels to me like um I do wonder if those wins at the end of last year really helped to build some confidence. And I actually go back to Cota last year. I just wonder if since then we've seen a slightly different Rosberg. It felt to me like at that Cota weekend, he was he had enough. Something in him snapped. It was like he went, you know what? I'm fed up of being second to Hamilton all the time. I'm fed up of being pushed around by him. I'm fed up of him feeling like he can just barge me out of pole on the first corner and that's it. I'm fed up of making silly mistakes and costing myself winning positions against him. No more. We've got to cut this stuff out. That was why there was the whole hat gate after the race. You know, that was Rosberg. He was annoyed. He'd let another championship slip away versus his teammate who he felt by that point could run roughshod over him so ever since then it's felt to me like Rosberg has really gone kind of you know what it doesn't matter who's on the other side of the garage I'm going to focus on having the best possible race myself and that will bring it to me and since then it's it's been on an absolute blind I mean Hamilton will dismiss the last three races of last year as hey he backed off it was you know the championship was won I don't buy that for a second if you're in a, if you're a no. race driver in a race car you want to win every race you're in Especially listen, someone like man. Hamilton. Go on. Listen, remember Abu Dhabi when they put Hamilton on the super towards the end and he was moaning his engineer like all oh, that does not sound like a guy that doesn't want to win a Grand Prix and doesn't really care. Exactly. Like Ham- like I'm not buying what Hamilton's selling on that at all. And if anything, Hamilton's tried to play the whole thing down since since his winning streak has happened. And like any 
smart athlete would. They're not going to um, embrace Rosberg's six race winning streak and say, oh, yeah, he's doing brilliant right now. He might be better than I am finally. He's turned no, the corner. Not. <laughs> you're not going to say that. You're never going to say that about your t- your main title rival. Of course you're not. But at the mm. same time, Hamilton's done his best to try and diminish this streak. And you know what? You can say what you will about Hamilton's bad luck. 25 points is still 25 points. And, and Rosberg had to go and get them. That's the thing. In previous exactly. years, he would have finished second or third in a few of those races. He would have exactly. lost to Vettel. He would have found a way to trip up and, and not take every single point. But this year, yeah. he has. <laughs> Point, the point is this, right? We've had 41 hybrid era races since since, since 2014. Mercedes has won 35 of them. And uh, a lot of, as, as Johnson, I think, made an excellent point where a lot of the time where if Hamilton has a bad day, Rosberg has not cashed in his opportunities. Like you said, Singapore was a prime example of that last year. Hamilton had his one technical DNF for the season. Rosberg finished fourth, was only able to take 12 points out of him. The two times that Rosberg had a, had a mechanical failure last year, the engine blowout at Monza and then the throttle failure at Russia, Hamilton won both times. Absolutely. Plus 50. Like, uh, there's a plus 50 point swing. And not, not to mention, yeah, he can take the 12 away from Singapore. That's still plus 38 for the year in a season where Hamilton won by 59. So there's some maths there for you. But in any case, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, it's one thing for your teammates to have issues, but you still want to cash in these opportunities. And we've seen it six times in the last two years where if Rosberg has a bad, like if Hamilton has a bad day, the other guy might not necessarily take full advantage of it because we've seen Vettel and Ricardo win three races each in those off periods for Mercedes. So it's, it's happened before King and going forward, like I want to talk about Hamilton for a minute here. And again, like, like, we, like again, you've mentioned it a minute ago about the rational side of your brain kicking in about, you know, can Rosberg win this title now? And, I was thinking about this the other day, and I mean, you may, you may see me tweet about this at Harrison101HD about this, and on Facebook as well. And I, I, I speculate because you know, I for those guys that don't know, I work in the bookmakers now time <laughs> when I'm not making this podcast. And of course, you have little sporting thoughts. I'm a big numbers guy; I always have been. Um, so I had a question I posed to Twitter, and the question I posed was this: How many points would you have to give Rosberg as a handicap? before you could confidently say he's going to win the championship. And I don't think anybody quite knew how to answer this. I did some thinking. I looked back at some numbers, did some stats, did some number crunching. As I do, I'm turning into Ted Kravitz slowly. It's not a good idea. <laughs> I'm going to be wearing socks and sandals next week. It's going to be terrible. I'm going to you know, start squashing some 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 plates and you know, using chocolate bars to describe tires. It's not good. Um, King, what number would you put on this? Because I, like, you are a big numbers guy. You are a big Rosberg fan. You, we've seen the last two in a bit seasons. Where would you stand on this? Oh, if he had to be amount of points clear. Oh my gut feeling. It would have to be somewhere between it'd have to be somewhere between a hundred, a hundred and fifty. Like two or three wow. races clear. Yeah. A hundred and fifty. So you, you're giving him six rounds. Mm. Yeah, because you, you got to remember, this is a 21 race season. That's true. It's that's a longer true. season, yeah. That's just that's that's true. There's a true. It's a 21 race calendar, and the funny thing is, is that I mean, you may have seen me already kind of spoil the game on this one, but um, I mentioned this on Facebook this morning that again Hamilton is 36 behind Rosberg. The number I came up with, and I clearly have more faith in your boy than you do, King. <laughs> is the number I had was 35.5. And the 35. reason why I said 30, 
And the, re- the reason I said 35.5 is, right, is, it, is that Mercs are the dominant team, assuming, right, that Mercs doesn't have any mechanical issues because like, you can't really factor that in. Like, assuming there's no mechanical issues, there is a seven-point difference between first and second. 25, 25 points for a win, 18 for second. The differential in wins between the two has been five or six the last couple of seasons. Like 2014, Hamilton won 11 races. Rosberg won five. Last year, Hamilton won 10. Rosberg won six. So for me, I thought five one-twos, roughly 35 points. You know, Hamilton tends to win about five races more than Rosberg does. If you gave Rosberg a 35 and a half point head start, I think he'd win the title overall. Johnson, you got two cents on this? Sorry, King, go on. Yeah, like hearing your numbers and thinking about my ultra conservative estimate was a bit too far in my end. I (laughs) I probably I wouldn't go as low as yours, but I'd probably go. Ooh, I'd have to probably go somewhere between 50 and 75. Mm. Well, still thinking thinking two to three clear races. That's that's deep. Mm. I understand where you come from. Johnson, you got two cents on this? Well, I'm normally terrible at maths, so Mm. I'm still interested Mm. in the numbers anyway. And this is a very fascinating discussion. For Mm. me, I'm sort of in the 40 to 50 point mark because Mm. I feel like what Rosberg has to do still is he just has to keep this pragmatism going. And what he has to be able to do, what will be the true test is when... Because uh, Hamilton's going to come back in him at some point. You get the feeling that of Hamilton course. will come back with about one, two, maybe three race wins in a row. And if Rosberg can get seconds in each of those and stay hungry and then take another win or so, you know, it's good. I mean, last year, the thing is, in 2014, it was close throughout the year and it kind of seesawed throughout the way. And then, you know, things started to fall apart for Rosberg near the end of the season. 2015, he was behind the eight ball right from the get-go. And he, especially after the the technical failures in it was it got to a point where he was hanging on and then those technical failures late in the season kind of killed his chances altogether killed now mm. he's in the scenario where he's actually got head start this is alien territory for rosberg you know even in 2014 he didn't really amass that much of a lead even when you know hamilton dnf the first race and you know a classic example hamilton dnf the first race of the hybrid era in australia rosberg i think true. was what second or third Oh no! Didn't he win that race? He won. He, he won, won that race. He Sorry. Yes. There race. you go. There you go. Um, I was getting confused. He was for a plus twenty. He was, he was plus twenty-five after the opening round and lost its title by sixty-four in the end. Well, that was mostly on double points, wasn't it? At yeah. The final round, double, so. double, yeah. He, he he lost fifty points on the on the on the double point retirement in Abu Dhabi, but he was he was minus seventeen by the time the second to last the, the time the second to last round came around. That was Brazil, a race he won. <laughs> yeah, and if I have to bring up another example. Canada that year where both of them had break by wire failures but Hamilton was forced to retire yet he was still able to somehow get a podium yeah exactly Rosberg still finished second that day to the eventual winner Daniel Ricciardo his first win so yeah like there's many different ways you can look at this and I I think again like I was the most I was the most generous of of the three of us when it came to a handicap I I gave 35 and Johnson and King were thinking 50 plus um 
I'm thinking more just on the case of uh, just the thing is mm. the thing is what's going to be key. I think Dre, your figure is accurate if Rosberg's pragmatism that he showed so far this season continues. If he's sure. able to still pick up as many points as possible from every single round, you know, do what Leicester City have been forced to do in their title running. You know, just get points wherever. Even on the bad days, you still finish second. You still finish third. Yeah, just just get the points wherever you can. I mean, Hamilton has still been able to do that to a degree so far this season. You know, you say limped home in second in Australia, limped home third in Bahrain. That's still very good for me. If that's off days for Hamilton, man. Yeah. But it was China yeah. where yeah. you, you really win a championship on your bad days. Exactly. So it's when Rosberg mm. has his bad days that it, it will swing back. But if Rosberg keeps displaying this kind of pragmatism and really kind of level-headedness, I haven't seen Rosberg flustered at all this season. He's been absolutely smooth as anything. Uh, mm-hmm. Same in the final three rounds of last year. As I say, I can't help but think that something changed in Rosberg last year at Cota. I don't, you know, I'm a little bit into the psychological side, but again, I think it's mm-hmm. too much is made of it. But I think a little bit was made of, maybe Rosberg took himself away from the, intense inter-team personal feud between him and Hamilton, you know, being so desperate to beat Hamilton. I think Rosberg just said, right, it's all about me now and amassing as many points for me. I'm out there to beat 21 other drivers, not just Hamilton. And I think that seems to work well. Yeah, to be fair, Johnson, as well. Cota was a race where Rosberg pretty much embarrassed himself. He was exposed in front of the entire American audience and as much as the UK audience as well. He threw away the championship. That was a race he was winning with five laps to go. Exactly. And he choked. He choked. He almost gave up second to Sebastian Vell, that same Grand Prix. And that choke was what led to Hamilton winning the race and the title. Rosberg's still in contention if he wins that Grand Prix. So it it was an awful situation where Rosberg had had nobody to blame but himself for throwing away the last sliver of a hope he could win. As I say, that's why he threw the hat back. It was frustration. He was annoyed with himself. He was furious. it was blatantly, it was blatantly mad of himself, and you know the last thing he needed on top of that was was his is his teammate obviously on a high of winning the title throw his cap back at him, uh, you know that's that's that, that's always going to piss a guy off. He's, he's going to make you <laughs> just rubbing it in, really, not, you know. Yeah, and I mean, I mean that was the that was the last of all of like a couple of other just choke moments from Rosberg last season, where I remember in Bahrain where you know Kimi Räikkönen just handed like just handed him and he just made a mistake ran off the road mm. yeah it's, it's, it's a very good point Rosberg's had those moments where he has bottled it on occasions I mean there was a reason why labeled him Bottleberg because of incidents like that so seeing Rosberg on this winning streak only fills me with hope for the season going forward again if you've got a number for the handicap and why again leave a comment I'd love to hear your thoughts on this one so mm. um, it's a very very interesting discussion uh, on the opposite side of that Sebastian Vettel and Daniel Kvyat now turn one there was a big incident there well, well you know because you know all turn one incidents tend to be these days but mm. uh Daniel Kvyat gets a lightning start from P6 on the grid, um, dives it down into turn one on, on the on the narrow apex, and uh, you know, into turn one he's he's came in uh, as, as Seb said he's come in like a torpedo, he's forced Seb to take evasive action, and Vettel has not seen the fact that Kimi Raikkonen was hanging around the outside of him. He's hit his teammate, Raikkonen falls to the back of the field. 
arm with a, with a slightly damaged car. Vettel takes a blow to his end plate. Like they're both they're both able to continue. Not a big deal. Obviously, Vettel comes back to finish in second. A great super soft to get through the field and then settle down and eventually take second over Danil Kvyat in third for the Grand Prix. So Seb was in the walls. Raikkonen came back to finish in fifth. A good recovery from him as well. So Ferrari. Kind of salvaging what was a bad situation, but uh, obviously we saw Vettel's uh, emotions boil over um, in in the post race press conference in the green room. He's talking to he's talking to um, Kvyat in Park Ferme, and Vettel is pissed. Basically says that um, says that uh, you know oh you came at me like a torpedo, et cetera, et cetera. You know Kvyat was all kind of nonchalant about the whole thing. Said you know oh, you know we, you, you, like Vettel saying oh we could have crashed. Kvyat was like oh but we didn't, so it's cool. And etc. Et, et, et you know, obviously the internet jumped all over that on Kvyat. You know, and um, of course, you know they they gave, they gave him the pixelated glasses, fug life kind of. I don't really care. Uh, memes you'll see on the internet these days. But um, King, why are we talking so much about an incident that had you know very little effect on the actual race itself? If anything, added more entertainment to the race because of what because of the Ferraris getting knocked down the order, and just in general an incident that really didn't actually amount to very much. Oh, like if I had to put this in the most fanboy terms possible, I'd probably have to say that the reason why this gained so much traction is because of what happened in the cool down room afterwards is it was basically Sebastian Vettel cutting a sick promo, doing an epic heel turn back to the doing to the Sebastian of Red Bull days of old. Multi twenty one Seb, yeah, multi twenty one Seb is back, and everyone lost their minds. Yeah, we all know that multi twenty one was arguably the most controversial moment in Sebastian Vettel's star studied career at that point in time. He, for the first time since maybe Turkey 2010, had had shown real emotion and real, you know, flustering uh, of anger regarding actions that are taking place on track. And, of course, something like this, like, we live in an an era of the world, you know, where Drama Alert can get 1.2 million subscribers on YouTube because people love internet drama. And, of course, like, let's be real here. Like, many people have often said, like, Sport is soap opera for men. And now you can go into the, you know, gender stereotypes regarding that till the cows come home. But the point is, is there's an element of truth to it because we thrive on moments like this. Like we, we, we all want to have our own two cents on incident this. And of course, in the era of drama and TMZ reporting and all that kind of crap, they're all going to just completely love this kind of incident happening. And Johnson, again, this really didn't amount to much, but of course, you know, it's Sebastian, one of the sport's most prominent names, uh, you know, two sides of the same spectrum. And for me, I don't think there's any real fault to be dishing out to anyone. I think mean, it's just, just a racing incident more than anything else. Like, have I got this wrong? Am I crazy? I don't think I am. I don't think I am on this one. No, not at all. I mean, um, I actually, uh, I'll be I'll be frank, I actually missed the race live. So I caught up with it mm. post the fact and I'd seen the backlash on Twitter. I'd seen what happened and I thought I was expecting, you know, kind of like what Bottas did to Hamilton in Bahrain, but even worse, you know, I was expecting total dive bomb city and I was expecting carnage. I watched the first corner unfold and I watched Vettel touch uh, Raikkonen and spin around and there was only a few corners later I went, wait a minute. What? Hang on. That thing with Vettel spinning... Was that the instant that everyone was, what, 
what did what did Kvyat do in all that? And I actually had to go back and was like, wait, where was Kvyat in all that? And I watched, I think uh, Formula One themselves posted on Twitter uh, clips, onboard clips of the incident. And it's to be honest with you, Kvyat has he's perfectly entitled. What he does, he actually backs off from going up the inside of Vettel initially because the gap's closing. Then. Uh, Vettel runs wide. He goes right out because the the apex of the first corner at, at China it's just ever tightening. It just goes on forever. So Vettel runs wide, and the gap just opens up, and Kvyat goes, "I'm going in it." And there's a huge chasm between him and and Vettel. It's a ma- you could get two cars wide between them. Jason Plato yeah. would have would have thought that it's you know parting like the Red Sea, considering some <laughs> of the gaps he's gone for in his career. And to me, I mean, David Coulthard absolutely nailed it on commentary. You know. Did did Kvyat go past him and shout boo? Because it looks like Vettel almost flinched and, and went left into Raikkonen. It's almost like he looked right and went, oh, there's someone on me inside. What's going on? As if that's a surprise at these massive well, first corner bundles into, especially at Herman Tilke type tracks where they have these really tight first corners. I just, I, it's, a total, it's a total non-issue. And one more thing. I, I watched the rest of the race unfold and considering some of the moves that Sebastian Vettel was pulling on other drivers, namely guys like Bottas, Kevin Magnussen, considering some of the moves he was pulling on those guys and some of the contact he was dishing out, he doesn't have a leg to stand on. I mean, come on. Yeah, like watching the incident, it, it seemed like Sebastian Vettel was driving into what Ayrton Senna famously called the disappearing wedge where, you know, you have Kvyat on the inside, obviously going for the apex you have Kimi Raikkonen on the outside not seemingly not knowing that Kimi Yacht's there and thinking that Sebastian Vettel's also moving back into the apex so Kimi moves in and you know runs into Sebastian Vettel who he didn't know was there it's it just, the whole thing just seems like incidental contact to me yeah and three guys trying to cut, go into one apex in on a turn one situation but of course you know we like drama so it's <laughs> going to be talked about and i still andre keemstar harrison so don't associate me with that asshole but it's one of those situations where like i still feel i still adamant in the, in the belief that the reason why be at one driver of because of that incident. I still cannot shake this because for me, I'd argue that Daniel Ricciardo was a more worthy winner of that stamp after having the puncher from the lead in um, on the early stages and then coming back to finishing fourth. Ricciardo himself said it was the best drive of his career. So mm. uh, I, I think Ricciardo was probably a more worthy winner. Even Sebastian, I think I had, had more of a claim given what happened to him on the opening lap. But of course, they self, they, people think he caused the incident. So pff, whatever. So... To the overrated beef, which was gone in about three minutes. It's amazing how champagne can bring people together like that. Um, <laughs> to actual beef between Romain Grosjean and Marcus Ericsson. And now, this King, was an unexpected heel turn. Yeah, like King. Holy crap. Romain Grosjean went off on Marcus Ericsson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He went off. Like, his his clean quote that he gave the media was that he, he knew that Ericsson was on the outside of turn one. So he was on the inside and he moved up. And he said that the move from Ericsson was completely idiotic. That's a very, like, like how the PG bad? version of the quote. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, he actually called him a uh, fornicating female lady part. I think we'll call it that. I mean, I mean, that's the nicest way I could possibly put it without actually swearing. My jar, my jar is already large enough. Thank you very much. But um, it, it seems like, for me, 
like we are uh, there's i don't think there's any video of this incident um i don't think anybody was bothering to put a friggin onboard camera on marcus erickson um and even so i can't see it so i can't comment but to call someone an, an effing bleep is just seemingly a bit out of order to me with um regardless of what he did unless he straight up killed you like i don't think that you know saying you know, you know effing and blinding and calling them that like it seems a bit unnecessary to me <laughs> i mean to, to be honest with you uh what it what it feels to me is that grosjean had a fairly miserable race it was on his birthday so his birthday yeah. was chat on basically um and ever since that first contact I, it must have damaged something pretty terminally because he never made that position up he finished 19th in the end didn't he he had a shocker yeah. so to me yeah it he felt had, like you know he had oh. to stop in pit lane to, to change his wing after that that's why he's so far behind yeah there you go so it feels to me like Grosjean had an all-round dreadful race and he wanted to take his frustration out on someone but even so this is weird because we all like Roman Grosjean He's supposed to be the nice guy. When he was on the radio celebrating after Australia and getting Haas Stefan's first oh, point, yeah. we were like, yay, this is brilliant. But this is weird. You kn- the last time I heard Roman Grosjean have a proper like meltdown was when his engine blew in um, Singapore 2014. And he just went yeah. off. I believe part of the quotes in the intro to this podcast, actually. The, I cannot believe it's that bit. That's, yep. that's him. But... That's the last time we heard him have a meltdown. What is going on? It just and to be fair, back then, and to be fair, back then he had a good reason to be pissed. Now the, here's what here's what. Oh, shut up! Uh, that's, that, I'm up to five for this episode already. Good lord! Uh, yeah, Marcus Ericsson after the race said the following: He said I was an idiot and that I was blind and some other things. Not very mature for an adult person to do that. He screamed at me and I told him to calm down, but he didn't want to do that. Instead, he said I was a bleep and bleep, and then went on to tell the media the same thing. I think it's immature, unprofessional, and disrespectful. I don't know. He was probably frustrated after having a bad race, but for him to say that to me, being a driver who's been suspended for dangerous driving and nearly losing his license, that felt a big, a bit weird. Oh! Now- <laughs> Ericsson suddenly going back to 2012 for some shade. Ericsson decides to throw the shade um, to, to the To be fair, he had a reason to yeah. in this case. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if I'm having an angry Frenchman coming up to me, effing and blind and telling me I'm an me i'm blind i'm sorry i'm throwing hands at that point i don't care about any other words i'm throwing down at that point like i will go full pull tracy on you and fight you in the middle of the street now again king like we don't we didn't see this incident so again we can't really comment on the full context of it but there's being angry and then there's what Grosjean did. Like, I, I don't think you would ever like it if somebody got up to your face, said you're a fornicating lady part, and then and then calls you an idiot. I think, you know, you're going to be a little bit aggrieved by that at least, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> like, like, throwing shade would be the least of that Frenchman's concerns. <laughs> exactly. Let me put it this way. So, I had a former flatmate of mine in university pull that on me and he ended up getting arrested for assault <laughs> oh wow um so the the inner workings of the johnson family life right there <laughs> that was a fun night in university halls i'll tell you that yeah i'll say um so yeah that's a thing and uh yeah grosjean uh, the mask has come deal of mr erickson we'll see if that ever develops into anything more i doubt it but uh happy birthday grosjean Maybe your 30th will be a little bit nicer next year. Um, so moving on to some other major news, despite the race itself actually being fantastic, um, 
the ratings for it were not very good at all. A blog from uh, David Nelson of the F1 Broadcasting blog. Shout out to those guys. Great people when it comes to looking for things like TV ratings and whatnot. This was the lowest audience for a United Kingdom Formula One race in a decade, King. And... No matter what way you slice it, I know China is a, is, is an early Grand Prix, like a six seven a.m. Grand Prix for us Brits. But even so, that's uh, it's not a good look, is it? Yeah, I mean it's it's not a good look. Britain's boys, what thirty six points back? People don't feel like tuning in. Yeah, it's amazing how. On paper, I think it was about three years ago we started calling, you know, people like my my former peers over at Pole Position. Shout out to those guys. Um, I remember they made a very specific video back in 2015 where they said, is Vettel killing F1 because he was winning all the time? And that was a year where Vettel won 13 times and the ratings had gone down by 100 million worldwide and everyone was saying, oh, is Vettel killing the sport? Which, Which... People didn't want to read between the lines and realize that it was because China and France had changed suppliers um, or changed broadcasters, and that's the big reason why the viewership went so low. But even so, I mean, the the historic. According to this quote in in this article, it says, "Unfortunately, the broader historical picture is bleak. The combined audience of 2.11 million viewers is the lowest for the Chinese Grand Prix since at least." 2005 it is also the lowest audience for a grand prix in general since 2006 you have to go back to the 2006 italian grand prix and that was the race where schumacher announced his retirement wasn't it holy crap yeah um the 2006 2006 italian grand prix to find a lower average audience this that particular race averages 1.86 million live on itv the combined peak audience of 2.94 is also the lowest since italy 2006 and two thousand six yeah, is actually a, a really competitive season too. If I like, I, I don't want to pull the Hamilton card, but that is also that is the last year before Hamilton entered the sport. That is interesting. Mm. That is very because remember two thousand seven was a big year for F one. Like Vettel debuted, Hamilton debuted, Alonso went to McLaren. We had we had Spygate become a thing. So it the was the first post Schumacher year. Yeah, yep. it was the first post Schumacher. So obviously, people are going to be more curious about how the about how the field settles. Obviously, Raikkonen, who was very popular at the time, had gone to Ferrari. You know, you had again, you had a the the, the young British hotshot in Hamilton debut, and you had Alonso in 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 one of the biggest British teams out there. There was a lot of reasons to watch in two thousand and seven. This year. As King quite rightly says, and as we've said before, Lewis is a superstar. He's a very unique entity in Formula One. And if he's struggling and that's your meal ticket guy, no one is tuning in for Nico Rosberg. Yeah. Um, and- like, like, let's be honest with each other here. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd, I'd probably have to add in other things like the bad PR from all the squabbles over qualifying. Um, mm-hmm. the, the rookie class is generally uninspiring this year Mm -hmm. Mm. can i also throw another factor in um this weekend was something of an absolute cluster fruit cake for different series being on on the same weekend you had in on one sunday you had formula one british gt at brands hatch which i believe was uh live on motors tv the World Rallycross Championship in Portugal, which for the first time was live on free-to-air television in the UK. It was on Quest. They had the uh, the finals day there. You had eight-plus hours of British Touring Car Championship coverage live on ITV4. You had the six hours of Silverstone FIWEC race 
And you also had stateside, you had IMSA United Sports Cars, uh, IMSA WeatherTech Sports Cars, IndyCar, and NASCAR Bristol. It was an absolute stacked deck of motorsport yesterday. And I think, I think what it came down to is a lot of people went, you know what? I've been feeling a little bit disenfranchised with F1 lately. Hamilton's starting from the back. It looks like he's going to have a terrible race. It's China, which has historically been probably one of the bottom three tracks Bad on the schedule. And we've got all this Bad other stuff going on, including the World Endurance Championship flagship event at Silverstone. I'm just not going to bother today. So I think that yeah. all conspired. And another, a comment on that article on the F1 broadcasting blog was made a very interesting point. I hate the term casual fans. I don't like that term. However, right. the point was made that if any sport probably has a higher quotient of casual fans who are more likely to tune in specifically for one driver, i.e. Lewis Hamilton, if you're British fans, then it's probably Formula One. So as soon as they heard the one story coming out of qualifying was Hamilton starting at the back and it's China, they probably went, eh, you know what? I might as well give this World Endurance Championship a try. Or, ooh, British touring cars are at Donington today. I'll watch that instead. So mm, it's it's just, it's a little bit weird though, how the two series that have generally had better racing across the board this year, Formula One and NASCAR, are both having like record low TV figures. It's very strange. Yeah, it's 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 more of it's more about their reputation preceding them more than anything else. I think so. Yeah, yeah, Mm. yeah, very much so. I think you know with Formula One again. I think King made a strong point about the whole bad PR look. I mean, the qualifying political struggle was a real debacle, and I don't think anybody really liked that. I think turned a lot of people off. That was the straw that broke a lot of fans' back. Really, yeah. the, the qualifying fiasco was a real was a real dog's dinner of affair, and it, it just exposed the true decision making process to the to the world of, of just how bad F one can be for this sometimes. And yeah, it was it was ugly to say the least. So yeah, I mean, I mean, David himself in in, in said blog said he reckons it could get worse. He reckons there could be a race that gets less than two million viewers between now and the end of the season, which would be terrifying. Especially considering we're moving up towards an era where Sky F1, the only way to watch Formula One in this country will be behind a paywall effectively. Yeah. So this is including free TV figures. So that, that could be a very scary prospect indeed going forward. Um, Moving on quickly and to stuff that was outside of China again. And Rio Harianto, we can't stop talking about this kid. And unfortunately, it's not in a positive light either. Um, not the best F1 uh, debut a few rounds for, for the young Indonesian man. And uh, it's not set to get any better because it turns out, King, that his seat for next year is dodgy to say the least. So much so he's had to band together with some Indonesian telecom firms to raise a crowdfunding campaign to get his seat secure for next season. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting that that he it, it seems like he's being sponsored by these firms, but these firms want, you know, a bit of marketing up front. So this crowdfunding campaign is more of you know, a marketing campaign in crowdfunding clothing. Mm. Yeah, it's exactly. kind of like the curse that fills in the talk spots for the actual sponsorship investment. Yes, exactly. It's like, hey, you scratch like if you scratch my back, I'll scratch your, so to speak, in terms. Sure, we don't mind funding you, but we want a little bit of promotion for ourselves at the same time. So we'll do it this way, and it's. It's it's interesting. Apparently, the things you have to in Indonesia, you you if you send off a particular text, 
you know, um, they will charge you, take away from your, to your credit, or you, 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 they'll bill you for this money and this money that they take from your. From this is borderline accounts. text three pounds a month to keep Harry Anto in a ride, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like an F1 version of Oxfam here, really, isn't it? Like, hold- <laughs> no, text like text three pounds a day right now, and you, maybe you can keep Harry, Harry and he's already paid 15 million euros for it um but, so- but i mean like harry Anto had the best like tagline the guy who got so many votes that f1 had to ban him from being driver of the day he broke yep. the fan voting system can i also point out the the whole fact that he's got a crowdfunder coming out now is probably not the best time considering we found a crowdfunding campaign for him before he was even secured at Manor. And we're now entering a, an era where I think in general, people are fairly jaded with race drivers going, I need, I need money to go racing. Give me money, please. Like, unless yeah. it's for a legit reason, like, for example... Um, British touring car driver Mike Bushell last year had to raise funds after he had a huge crash at Thruxton. It wasn't his fault, and it left him with a, a broken leg, I think. So he had to recover from injuries and get his funds back together to keep racing. And he offered things like track day uh, passenger rides in his old Clio Cup car and things like that. So from that respect, if, you've, if you're a race driver and you've had something taken away from you, then fans can go, well, do you know what? I can get behind that. That's not fair. But if you are literally just saying, I want to go racing, but I can't because money, give me money. It's starting to leave a bad taste in the mouth, isn't it? Exactly. Especially in a sport that's got such a reputation for money in the first place. They're going to I mean, two years ago, Caterham was running a crowdfunding campaign to keep the entire team together. That was a joke. That was such a joke. Like, exactly. Th- like that was that was no positive to, that that could have been come from this. Like, I, look, I don't care enough about catering to pee on them when they're on fire. Let's alone talk about giving them money to keep them on the grid. Quite frankly, so for like a lot of people did fund that catering crowdfunder, and to be honest with you, that looked very shady at times as well. Given that they suddenly took, they suddenly got enormous spikes. Mm. In, in the amount of funding involved for said crowdfunder. Um, and all of a sudden, I remember, that I'm, I'm pretty sure at one point, the target actually went up as well to keep them on the grid in the first place. So there was a lot of shady things about that cater and crowdfunder that still leaves a bad taste in the mouth. And I'm not saying this one is any less legitimate. I'm sure it is. But at the same time, like... F, well, from what I've noticed, F1 fans didn't like a crowdfunder, and I know a lot of people have not liked the concept of crowdfunding in general. I still, you know, there's still debatable uh, circumstances where people will draw fire with, with the, the whole concept of crowdfunding in general. And mm. you know, I've had incidents like that before. And, uh, you've gone down the crowdfunding road before, um, Johnson. I've had um, emails for people telling me that you know why should we back you with money? And it's like, you know, like people want to support you, but as soon as you mention money, like people's opinions change very quickly. Yeah. Uh, at least that's what I've noticed over the years. And, you know, King, when you've already paid 15 million euros for a seat, um, due to use of marketing powers and the Indonesian government and their oil and whatnot, uh, now you're asking for more, I think at some point people are going to very fairly ask, are you taking the pee? Quite frankly, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm getting out here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it's so difficult because this is a world championship with probably like a combined net worth of $2 billion, but there's not enough money to go around for everyone to get paid to drive. 
Exactly. So, you know, that's the nature of, the, of a sport that circulates a lot around large amounts of money and using that large amount of money to get your foot in the door with certain teams. So, of course, it's not going to necessarily go over well at all. That's just kind of the nature of it all, really. Now, one more... Well, a couple more fun stories, actually, before we go. Um, we'll move on to IndyCar, I should say. Um, Alfa Romeo. Uh, this has been talked about a little bit in teasing and in passing over the last couple of months about the possibility that Alfa Romeo might be set for a full return to Formula One mm-hmm. as a as an official Ferrari B team. And these rumors seem to have gained more traction in the last week, King, mm-hmm. where it seems like obviously Sergio Marchione, the head man at Ferrari, was at the Chinese Grand Prix this weekend. And there was a few quotes that came out of them that were interesting. And one of them was, you know, he was asked about the Alfa Romeo situation and he didn't exactly deny it, King, did he? Yeah, he didn't outright deny it, giving some credence to the rumors. And, you know, there's some smoke to be seen because Saber is struggling financially. And that is very well known. Uh, King, can I ask you a question, though? Earlier on, on this very episode, you heard me talk about the difference between no smoke without fire rumors or Audi rumors. Yeah. Is this Alfa Romeo potentially buying out Sauber? Is this another Audi to F1? Because we heard them say they were going to supply Red Bull with engines and we we're going to do this. And so and so said something about Audi coming in. And it just, I don't know. I'm probably being cynical. It feels to me like a rerun of the Audi rumors. Is there more substance to these ones? Well, the fact that Sergio Marchionne didn't deny them is big because he is the president of Fiat Chrysler. He runs Alfa Romeo. Mm. So him him directly n- not denying it or not addressing it, that's a sign. Because, I mean, there were th- there were times last year where people went, oh, they didn't deny Audi. They didn't deny it when we asked about Audi. But it was more a case of it's not even a point. What are, we're, what are we talking about? But you think there's more substance to this one? Yes, because he's... He's CEO of Fiat Chrysler. He's president of Ferrari, and he denied the rumors while standing in the middle of the F1 paddock. It's he, he's involved in the sport. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's not to mention as well as this King to Sauber is in, in deep trouble. I mean, we saw it in February. They paid their staff late for February. They, apparently, the rumors are going to park Fermi F1. They didn't pay them for March either on time. And that screams to me a company that has severe cash flow problems. Mm. And seemingly, I, I could I could be speculating here, but I feel like Salba could be running hand to mouth at the moment. And that, like, the actions of paying your staff late screams to me of we have cash flow issues and that we probably... Isn't that normally the first sign? Normally when you hear of, say, football Mm. clubs not paying their staff, isn't that the first sign that they're heading slowly towards administration? I mean, that was the first signs that the likes of Caterham and Mauritius were in big trouble, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, Mauritius... I think it was uh, it was Cota like in twenty twenty fourteen. I think it was was the first year where well, that was the year when Mauritius closed the doors as we knew them at, at the time, and they 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 remember the rumors or the story that came out at the time at Cota that weekend was that Mauritius had been living hand to mouth since Belgium after the summer break, and that you may remember was the weekend where Max Chilton very nearly lost his seat to Alexander Rossi, but it took a last minute bit of funding from Chilton's own family to keep him in the seat. 
because Rossi was bumped out for the session. They put Chilton back in and everything seemed to be fine again for a couple of rounds. Mm. And the story was that, was that Mauritius at that point was already living hand to mouth. So any money they were getting in was immediately going back towards funding people and costs of the business. So that screams to me of a business that, again, has cash flow problems. And if you have no cash, then you're going to grind to a hole and you're going to have severe problems like any business, any business owner will tell you. So... I, I think there is definitely a possibility. And I know we didn't talk about Sauber much. And these rumors have been going around for, I'd say, a good couple of months now. But we didn't really talk about it on the show because we felt like there wasn't much to it. The more this goes on, the more it feels like there is some smoke to this fire now. And I, again, I only wish Sauber the best because, I mean, they are such a historic team. They are a key part of Formula One history. They've, they've had over 400 Grand Prix as a team, which I think is the third most of any team ever that's no longer with us if they were to suddenly park park their doors for good and you know it's a shame because i like manisha keltonborn i think she's a great i think she's a very solid team boss and it's a shame she had the free driver scandal of last year i was like oh manisha no because I, I i always feel like she made a lot of valid points regarding the cost of the sport and you know the nature of how it might be a problem for people and she seemed very level-headed and very rational regarding that as all lawyers tend to uh, <laughs> um but again this it'll be a shame if we lost them and I, again i can only wish salva the best going forward and it's it'll be a darn shame if um it's starting to get pretty boring isn't it year after year talking about one or mm. two teams living on the brink isn't it obviously 2014 we had caterham and russia 2015 we had bailiffs turning up at lotus you know they were living hand to mouth for a while it just feels to me in this era of f1 now that it's like devil take the hindmost it's just waiting for one or two teams per year to potentially, you know, cling on and maybe fall through the trap door. And again, that's more negative PR for the sport. It doesn't look good. I mean, unless you are a Haas who are prepared, literally has the disposable income to dump X amount of millions into the sport every year, then, I mean, how many people out there are prepared to do that? King? But I mean, the fact that it's Sabre is a big sign that something was really wrong with the sport like Sabre was the factory outfit for two manufacturers first Mm. I mean most recently BMW obviously and previously in sports cars as Mercedes factory team they were you know the first major team for Heinz Harold Frensen and Michael Schumacher yeah Yeah, that's a that's a big team and a lot of very high profile started their careers or had a part in Salba's history. I think Jacques Villeneuve was one of them, Felipe Mass, Kimi Raikkonen's another one. As you said, Schumacher was another big one and Heinz Howard Frensen, who had a great career. Um, so, you know, many, many great drivers have gone through Salba's gates at some point. And it's, 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 it was a great outlet for a lot of very prominent and very special drivers. And again, like I said, they're a key part of F1 history. And again, it'll be a darn shame to lose them. So, yeah, I, I wish them the best going forward. And I, and I hope that the, the, that the news or the rumors circulating aren't as serious as, as many fear. Um, mm. Moving on, last last major F1 story. I'll come back to F1 at the end of the show but there's one more I want to talk about as well. And um, it came through today. It looks like the FOM are being a bit more draconian again. And it seems, Johnson, that they are going after dot, 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 dramatic pause, gift makers. Now, Oh, those <laughs> dastardly gift makers stealing uh, our money. They took our tubes. Yes, it is a bit like that poem I recited earlier. First, they yeah. came for the modders. And we did nothing. Then they went after Rights <laughs> of Studios and we did nothing. Now they're going off to the gift makers. And can I just say, again, 
gavel bashing time. This <laughs> again, just like with the modders. I know AJ rant alert. Just with the modders, just the same thing. FOM technically has a point here. They do hold copyright and hold the intellectual property. And they obviously want to funnel everyone to the official places to watch Formula One content on F1.com and things like that. And they have every right to enforce their intellectual property and their rights. But this attitude is from somewhere around 1989, before the internet was even a thing. This is going back to the days when your parents told you that people recording music off the radio onto tape cassette was going to kill the music industry. Or, you know, the people now who, are gonna, who in the mid-2000s told you Napster was going to kill the music industry. This is... It's just so goddamn outdated and so what's the point in going after these people who aren't making any money off this? The modders aren't making any money off their liveries and schemes and, and mods. The gift makers certainly aren't making any sodding money. Someone on Reddit is not making money off of making entertaining gifts. And someone on Twitter made, made a joke about this. I think it was Marcus Hoare. They said, oh, they don't care if you're not buying a Rolex. And Nick Damon of Radio Le Mans and RCTV had the best point possible. He said, yes, but they are going after people who in future will be buying the Rolexes. And that's why this business model is so flawed. It doesn't, I I just don't see what they hope to achieve here. They're not bringing anyone new into the sport. They are only driving away some of the most dedicated fans of the sport. The people who are prepared to sit around and muck around making gifts and spend hours and hours of time unpaid just because they love the sport, making mods for these games and things like that. And going after Rights to Studios, which is a, a studio and games company that the sim racing community loves. And uh, it's just so old fart, breathe, isn't it? Johnson, breathe, Johnson, yeah. breathe, breathe, breathe. Yeah, it's I'm like calm. it's I'm like calm. it's like we get it. We get it. They, they believe that. Oh, they're not going to subscribe to Sky F1 if they could just watch the Grand Prix on these things called GIFs. <laughs> <laughs> it's like somebody doesn't quite know what actually is that's come through and made this legislation and they're going after the gift makers. Now, to be fair, they're not the only ones that have done this. I mentioned this on Twitter earlier today. I know famously the UFC have gone after people that have made gifts of particular fights and highlights, especially during the Ronda Rousey era, <laughs> where she was knocking people out and tapping them out in 20 seconds. And you could, you literally could put the entire fight into an Instagram video or even a Vine. Um, and, you know, that, that would obviously, again, that is copyright. And again, they have every right to go after it. But should they go after it? I, I, I say no. I like I, I still argue that if people see an, an entertaining GIF, I'd argue they're more likely to go out of their way to actually watch it rather than saying, oh, I'm Absolutely. not going to bother now because I'm not going to bother now because I've seen it already. No, if they see it and they like it, there's a better chance they'll actually subscribe to it in future. So and, for uh, me, yeah. I... Yeah, I, the I, top I comment... The top comment on every single thread on any popular GIF is threat is source question mark. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. the thing is... Um, another thing we have to consider here, why is Formula One and FOM focusing so hard on taking down these forms of alternate media instead of focusing on improving their own online media presence? Because I don't know about you, I don't hear stories of the German Bundesliga doing this sort of thing, do you? I hear stories of them focusing on making their YouTube channel and their online content and their social media really, really enjoyable and rich and creative. I mean, you know, the Bundux League is obviously the most awesome thing on the internet. But that aside, yes. <laughs> why isn't Formula One, you know, NASCAR, their social media people, they, they make their own gifts during the race. 
They, you know, during the Xfinity Series races and during the Cup races, they'll throw up little gifts during the race. WWE does it. You can watch almost entire episodes of Raw just by watching the WWE Twitter feed and they'll throw up gifts of all the big moments during the race in the hope that you'll go, ooh, oh my God, something just happened. That was amazing. That, that spot was really cool. I'll go watch that. I'll go subscribe to the network. But as I say, Formula One's attitude, it's stuck somewhere in the 1980s. Yeah, and I think it, it just with- it just stinks of someone at FOM went asked their grandson what a GIF is and got an mm. ugh, granddad. You're so not down with the kids, and they went right. We're going to take down these damn gifts. Yeah, go on, King. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think the problem with F1's you know method is that their their market value thrives on exclusivity, not the actual quality of the content that they're shelling out. And the thing is, while, you know, the WWE has a WWE network to promote, F1 doesn't really have anything to promote. They don't sell anything to the fans except that, you know, F1 access thing, which is pretty terrible. Like they have nothing to sell to the fans. Scoring system. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And like I like to end this segment, I will close with what NBA commissioner Adam Silver said about the possibility of people ripping NBA content and putting it on YouTube. And Adam Silver summed it all up in three words. King knows what these three words are. Highlights are marketing. End the discussion. There's a guy moving who gets on it. To, yeah, moving on to IndyCar. And... IndyCar had the Grand Prix of Long Beach this past weekend, and it was a big day for the Penske yet again as Simon Pagano took, yeah, the other guy at Penske, (laughs) Simon Pagano took his first win for the Penske team in Long Beach in in what was a sadly kind of lackluster sort of race. Again, I think it was, I said on Twitter, it was a typical Long Beach kind of race where... There was a lot of close racing, but not a lot of actual overtaking and drama. And, well, when I say lack of drama, I mean it all centered around one key moment of the race. Now, the pit exit heard around the world. There's something enough we would say there, would you? Um, Now, to put some context into this situation, uh, it's the final round of pit stops. Simon Pagano goes the longest on his final stint. Now, he comes out of the pit lane. Now, there's a rule with the Long Beach pit exit. It's it's far on the left-hand side when you're coming out of the pit lane, and you're not allowed to rejoin the track or even accelerate the car until you can get at least two wheels outside of of that yellow line that was on the exit of the pits. Pagano, I think it's very fair to say here, definitely runs at least two wheels over that line. Uh, on the pit exit and you could make the argument that it was a critical part of the race because that action was part of the reason why he was able to narrowly stay ahead of Scott Dixon and would go on to win the Grand Prix now King <sighs> it's hard to talk about this one because again we, we again, I think we're all in agreement that but Pagano by the letter of the law did break the rule by putting at least two wheels over the line but let's be real here I think it's fair to also say it was a liberty that people were always going to exploit. Yeah, like, uh, let me read the quote from Race Control. According to Race Control, Pagano's route out of pit lane was deemed an infraction per Rule 71011. 
lane usage of the IndyCar penalty guidelines, failing to follow the designated procedures, entering or exiting the pit area, including the proper use of acceleration and deceleration lanes. The penalty for this infraction ranges from a warning, the minimum, to putting a driver to the back of the field, mid, and a drive-through or stop-and-go penalty maximum. The drivers felt that his actions were not deemed severe enough to warrant a harsher penalty than a warning, so they just issued a warning. And I, I get that because the you can obviously tell watching the race that the line painted there as the you know pit exit line is not one that's painted there for the race. It's your standard double yellow line that you see at the medium median of any roadway in a city. Yeah, this is it's just you know, a convenient line that happened to be there already. Um, it's, again, now that's the rule as the letter of the law in the book. Now, it's up to the stewards to decide you know, how big an infraction that was. Now, there's two sides to this. And, and you know, there's a lot of people that are saying, oh, it's kind of a, a rule that everybody kind of broke, so you, you, you've got to be consistent with this punishment. And the other side, when I, when I, when I say other side, I mean Scott Dixon. <laughs> I mean <laughs> anyone affiliated with Ganassi. Yeah, essentially. Um, we're saying on the other side of the camp saying, oh, you know, the, the rule was broken and, you know, he should be punished for it. Now, Technically speaking, he was. He was given a warning for it. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. um, it, it wasn't the punishment that they wanted. They wanted Pagano to take a probably a drive-through penalty for that infraction. Now, I know that a lot, a lot of people from the Ganassi's camp, I think it was Dixon's race engineer during the race, who said along the lines of we were told that, you know, if anyone does it, it's going to be a penalty, et cetera. It's, it's basically one great big game of he said, she said. Of course. And I think, I think Pagano's closing line after the race was hilarious when he came out and said, I got an inch, so I'm good. <laughs> and you've got to um, give a shout out to Danny Brennan on Twitter. <laughs> oh, wow. He said, and I quote Simon Pagano, the only man who is... Uh, so, yeah, well done, Brennan. Well, well played, sir. Arguably his greatest tweet ever. Um, it's... It, for me, personally... I use the comparison to cricket. Now, cricket is a sport where I think a lot of the times the spirit of the game can take precedence over the rules of the game. Now, before the days of, you know, DRS, the other use of DRS, not the one you get in Formula 1, but obviously the video replay system and you know, third umpires these days in cricket, you know, you, you know any marginal calls often go upstairs. Um, before that, you know, sometimes the umpire would get it wrong or, you know, the bowler was, is very honest enough to admit that, you know, the umpire may have got an LBW call wrong. And I've seen incidents before, like guys like Andrew Simons have been called back to the call back to the crease and to hold to bat again because the, the, the team were genuinely adamant that they felt like the umpire got it wrong and the umpire is okay with that. It's like, yeah, okay. If, if, if you genuinely think that it was okay, we'll let it continue. And I love that sportsmanship and I love that element of sometimes the spirit of the rule can take precedence over you know over the straight up hard fast spots in the book and i think what pagano and what happened with him was the perfect example of that king i feel like if you're gonna be consistent over a liberty that everybody was kind of taking the piss out of anyway you really can't punish pagano just because his one may have affected the race result well, at least that's what i think anyway yeah it yeah. was very difficult wasn't it i mean 
uh, it, the, the problem I had, I mean, obviously everyone was jumping on Twitter. The big issue we had here and the reason why there was such a, a sort of um, mob mentality uh, about this was the commentary team just would not drop it. My goodness. Oh, when did Paul oh. Tracy become judge, jury and executioner on this one? It was literally a case of, no, no, we need to go back. Let's have a look one more time. Slow motion, zoom it right in. And I was sitting there going, that's great. We've seen five times that Simon Pagano has put all four wheels across the yellow line. That's great. Can you go back and find me Scott Dixon's last pit exit? Or as it turned out after the race, some people on Twitter actually did find a bunch of other pit exits, including somebody grabbed a brilliant screenshot of, uh, I'll, I'll try and find it briefly now on Twitter, actually. Um, someone actually found a screen grab. They paused it at the exact moment that uh, Elio Castroneves was leaving the pit lane. And I'll tell you what, he turned and in he, about he a foot earlier. Yeah, and he and he and he led the majority of the race too. Yeah, like he he, he was in the lead for over half three. Helio Castroneves, and again, it, for me, it feels like if everyone's doing it, you can't punish the guy who happens to be at the front for it. It's not like it's not like NFL Spygate where the Patriots got caught doing what everybody else did, uh, and somebody had to take the fall for it. It's not. It shouldn't be like that in in, in an Indy car race. Like if 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 everybody is doing it, then you've just got to let it slide. I think the reason why Pagano got the warning was because it was on the hard camera for all to see, plain and in plain daylight, right when Dixon came out in a key moment of the race. Hmm. I don't think it was worth. A, I don't think it was worth a bigger penalty at all. Because, and to be real, the stewards are not going to make that call. They do not want to directly influence who wins a Grand Prix. I think they knew that. And basically, if you give Pagano a drive-through penalty there. You've basically rigged the outcome because yeah. we all know that at that point, the moment Pagano takes the penalty, Dixon's won. Because yep, we all knew it. that Dixon was, was one of the fastest men on track that day, and Dixon would have won the Grand Prix easily if Pagano had gotten that drive-through penalty. So for me, King, the stewards' hands were kind of tied on this one, and I don't think there's any way on earth they could have given that penalty at all. Uh, be King, before you go on, I have found the tweet. It was from uh, Stephanie Warcroft uh, at 99forever on Twitter, uh, and the exact, it's a screen grab from her television, and the brilliant thing was, she says, it's from the NBCSN highlight reel. Note, that car exiting pit lane is not Simon Pagano's car, because obviously it's similar liveries. It's Helio two laps earlier. Guessing this is why it was the warning. And honestly, Castroneves is turning in a good five feet, I'd say, before the end of the yellow line. And other people pointed out they saw the likes of Mikel Alotion, Tony Kanaan. I thought during the race that a couple of Dixon's exits were pretty marginal. Um, and what I found really interesting in the end... Um, was Chip Ganassi's comments himself. It was him that was probably the most calm about it all. Uh, and he actually said he'd advocate uh, the introduction or the reintroduction maybe of cones um, and or uh, something like they use in NASCAR where they have, you know, very uh, a whole rank of cameras along pit lane to accurately call uh, pit penalties immediately. Um, so something like that on pit exit would be very useful down there to make it more cut and dry. So if half the field is taking liberties down there, then half the field are flagged for penalties and it stops. So, sorry, King, go on. Yeah, but I, I really feel that this is only a street circuit issue because most of the lines drawn on street circuits are either there temporarily or just already there out of convenience and it's not really a measure of what a proper pit exit should be because if you actually followed the double yellow down to the end and turned you'd really compromise 
you'd really lose a lot of time that you really shouldn't be losing under any circumstance. Not to mention, if it were being consistent with this whole thing, why the hell wasn't Max Chilton given a penalty for blatantly turn five? occasions like <laughs> like this like 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 max chilton like he was shameless about this he had like he said themselves that the uh, the cut in the white line rule would not apply for this grand prix so uh, on like three or four occasions chilton just straight up cut the corner and it was almost able to pass guys because of it and he was given a warning from the students don't do that again you naughty boy he basically but- just took his own line through turn five didn't he Exactly. Yep. He, just, he just took his own line through it, cut the corner blatantly, no penalty. So the stewards just kind of let everything go on this one, which is probably the way it should have done. So for me, personally, like Pagano's case is a complete non-factor, and I think the stewards made the right decision, in my opinion, to let the win stand for SP. And speaking of which, like I said, it was his first Penske win, King, and I know we talked about this a lot on... Um, on our IndyCar season preview of Sarah Connors, shout out to her as ever. And we meant, we mentioned that Pagano seemed to be about 90% there from a Schmidt-Peterson days where he was a genuine title threat with one of the lower teams. And he's been sensational so far this season, King. And it, like, it looks like Pagano has really gotten it all together this year. Yeah, like I mentioned it in the... I mentioned in the St. Petersburg review how uh, Roger Penske said if if Pagano didn't improve, he was going to get fired because apparently the bottom guy at the end of the year is going to get fired at Penske. Wow. And Pagano didn't want to be that guy. Like this aura of being the fourth wheel when with this superpower team of willpower who was reigning champion last year and obviously a ridiculously good driver. Monty, again, ridiculously good driver. Helio, IndyCar series legend, no matter which way you look at it, and one of the greatest drivers the series has ever had. So... Pagano was kind of like the fourth wheel and like basically the mouse with three very big cats around him on like the world's darkest episode of Tom and Jerry at this point in time. <laughs> so for Pagano to get it all together and now for, for him to be outright points leader, Johnson is a great turnaround. And again, we, we've, we've always known Pagano's had this potential, but it's awesome to see it come to come to light, really, isn't it? Especially given, like, as, as we said before, he's kind of been labelled as the fourth Penske guy in the, uh, the the odd one out, so to speak. Yeah, this is a great step up for Pagano, and it's it's great to see him like really step up like this. It's clear that he's had the rocket from Penske, and when you get a ro- rocket from Roger Penske, you step up. There is no option other than that. I mean, this is a guy who had no qualms with ditching Kurt Busch as soon as he started to act up uh, in the NASCAR operation. This is a guy who is prepared to. You know, Penske has a rich history of winning and making the calls that he needs to. And when you've got a guy who just missed out on the title last year, Juan Pablo Montoya, you've got Elio Castroneves, one of the biggest characters in the sport, one of the most successful, and Will Power, you know, a championship threat every single year, pretty much. It's tough to come into that operation as the fourth wheel. It is so difficult. But Pagano, you know, Penske's sitting there going, no, it's not. I hired you because you're a race winner and I believe you can win me championships. If you don't, you're fired. It doesn't matter who's in the other cars. You're here to deliver. So he probably explained that to him in no uncertain terms in the offseason. And, you know, Pagano has always had good form in terms of race winners. It's not like he's not possible in doing this. He's a race winner in IndyCar before. Go back to his sports car days. He used to be very, very strong in the American Le Mans series. And he was a regular race winner there in the old uh, Acura LMP2 cars. And, of course, he was part of the Peugeot LMP1 team at Le Mans for several years. And uh, I believe tasted success at La Sarthe as well. So this is a proven driver. He's very, very good. So I think Penske probably sat him down more with a tone of, you know what? 
I know you can do better than this. Uh, it doesn't matter who's in the other cars. I know you can win races and championships, potentially. It's time to show me. Probably the whole show me or you're fired thing was pretty extreme, but hey, seems to have done the trick, right? He seems to have done the trick, and we all know that Roger Penske is a man of incredible standard, and he holds himself to incredibly high regard, and deservedly so. He's a winner, and he only wants to employ winners, and that's why he employed Pagano in the first place. So great for Pagano, and I'm sure it'll be the first of many more for under the Penske umbrella. The guy's a stud driver. I said it before, he's one of the, one of the great all-rounders in the series. He's, he's like Monty. He's just strong everywhere at this point if he, if he can get the pack racing down on ovals he's going to be sensational and i'm glad that he is starting to put it all together at last now one of the big talking points coming out of indycar in the last week or so in fact actually i argue for the last month or so has been the battle between chevrolet and honda and the aero kits and it seemed to have another negative effect on this race, Johnson, as it was Joseph Newgarden, Graham Rahal, James Hinchcliffe, and Tony Ganahan all came out against having this high downforce setup at Long Beach, where there was, again, the, the, you were able to run close, but you were not able to be able to overtake, um, or very rarely were you able to overtake outside of the push-to-pass feature. Obviously, that's a, a key part of the series, Johnson, and it looks like the drivers, I think, have started to have enough of this of the, of the direction that IndyCar is going in with these very, very, you know, over the top. You could argue an excessive downforce elements in these aero kits. Well, this is interesting, isn't it? Because this backlash really started around Phoenix and there was talk already that the aero kits were proving unpopular in the garage area, adding additional costs you know, not adding much in terms of actual racing quality. You know, when some people like, I, I remember Will Power and Scott Dixon raised concerns about it last year, about the dirty air issue. And we all sort of scoffed and went, hang on a minute, 2015 was one of the best years of IndyCar racing in, in years. It was an absolutely awesome year. It feels like this year, uh, I, I don't know, the aero kits are starting to lose their luster. And what's interesting about this is, um, I actually had a discussion with uh, IndyCar driver Pippa Mann on Twitter about this. Uh, massive no, friend of the show as well. You. She chewed you out. Let's be honest here. She, she threw the shade at you, Johnson. I'll, I'll <laughs> clarify this because I, I happened to tweet about that was, you know, I happened to say, so that's four drivers now taking a crap on this race. And she corrected with, I think you'll find it's more like, offering you know she kind of clarified me because he thought i was i was throwing shade at the drivers for being so negative about the race my fault it was poor wording my bad i'll hold my hands up it's fine i'm never normally one who calls out drivers for being critical and she made the point of saying they weren't explicitly calling for downforce to be lowered but too much downforce has now gone to the top side this is the age-old discussion about uh downforce on top full of uh, winglets and that causing dirty air versus downforce created bottom side on the underneath the car through ground effects and things like that and you know these current error kits have gone too far with producing downforce on the top side more downforce needs to go away from the top and down to the bottom where dirty air is less of an issue with downforce created down there. And this, you know, this is an issue that's been apparent in Formula One for many, many years. NASCAR has recently been dealing with the issue of uh, high downforce causing dirty air. And it's interesting how it's causing different sets of problems. At Phoenix, it meant the cars were going so, so fast. It was borderline unsafe at a mile oval like Phoenix and tough to pass. At Long Beach, it just meant it was so tough to pass. And it's interesting because... I looked up the various layouts of the Long Beach Grand Prix layout and back in the mid-90s, 
if anything, they ran an even shorter, even faster layout than they do now. They basically ignored the fountain section and they had, you know, rather than the definitive left-right turn six and seven, they had a fast left-right kink straight onto the back boulevard. And this being caught in the 90s, they had super fast cars, but they didn't have as much topside aero, so they could still pass. They could still run side by side. And those races were pretty entertaining, even though there were even less definitive passing zones than there are now. So I feel like with that many drivers, uh, you know, drivers with real authority and real clout in the series, like Canaan, like Hinchcliffe, like Newgarden, like Graham Rahal, you know, these guys know all about close IndyCar racing and what's, you know, I generally trust the drivers. If they say certain things need to be done to improve the racing, hell, they're the guys out there doing it. So if, and it was almost consecutive, it was like everyone interviewed after the race, it was the same thing coming up. It was one of two things. Number one, the race needs to be longer. So it's def- definitely a three stop rather than some guys going two stop and trying to save fuel the whole way, very much an F1 type problem or or and or you know cut down force from the top side maybe put more into the low side so you you have less dirty air and you can actually make passes because i mean for long beach it was a pretty good race but even so you know when you've got that many drivers saying hey we tried but this this race wasn't good um it's uh, i kind of enjoyed how you know as pippa made the point um they weren't you know, just taking a dump on the race. They were being, you know, constructive about it. They were saying, look, it wasn't a great race. Here's how we can improve. We want things to be better for the fans. And NASCAR was in a very similar situation last year. You know, they were, drivers were coming up week after week saying, look, we need to cut down force out of these things. NASCAR actually tried going a different route. They went for high drag, which if anything was even worse. It was horrific, the two races they tried out there. And they went, you know what? All right, you drivers, believe it or not, the drivers know best about how the cars drive. What's the surprise? And they cut down force for this year. And generally so far, the results have been very good. So I feel like IndyCar 2017 could be fairly similar to NASCAR 2016. But either way, Dre, do you see the Aero Kit experiment lasting much longer beyond this year? Because I don't. I think I think we're going to reach a breaking point soon. And I think the breaking point might be the Indy, which is not that far away now. Less than... I think yeah, less The Indy 500 80, is close, isn't it? And yeah, we're already having controversies about um, underside parts for that, aren't we? Yeah, there's already talk about, you know, dome skids about the Indy 500 and the fear that might be, you know, and the talk about Chevrolet potentially, the conspiracy of Chevrolet could be sandbagging their own package to not allow Honda to get as much time to develop to try and catch up in the in the spirit of competition. And I know Robin Miller was very active about this on, on, on Racer.com. He made a big article talking about how he felt like, you know, why should Honda be allowed to catch up? You know, it's the spirit of motorsport, the best car wins, etc. Absolutely. So for me, I think I think that the, the negativity in the camp has grown exponentially in the last month or so. And I feel like it's going to reach critical mass soon, King. And I, mean, I, don't, I don't know what vibe you're getting, but I, I, that's how I look at it, at least. Yeah, I mean, oh, it, it's competition. What got us here? The fact that you've had Chevy and Honda develop aero kits with these with these cars to try to get as much downforce as possible means that these cars can't race against each other. Delara built a good spec DW12 that can race each other well, and, hmm. and manufacturers coming in to try to try to squeeze out as much performance as they could yes while the cars are much much faster now they can't race each other as well as they used to 
And what's fascinating yeah. to me is, again, going back to, you know, your mid-90s car. I don't want to sound like one of those old nostalgic guys who are oh, oh, still are, mourning like- the death of Champ Car. But what's interesting to me there is that that was full-blown manufacturer wars. You had tyre wars going on. You had loads of different engine and chassis manufacturers, you know, Lara, Reynard, you know, Mercedes and Ford and, and loads of other. I think Honda and Toyota were supplying engines back then. You had a lot of different guys in there. But generally... Um, you know, you look at the cars back then, there wasn't a huge amount of downforce topside. You know, they had big wings and everything. Of course, they were generating a lot. They were quick cars, but they had very powerful engines. But generally, they could race each other for the most part. And you got some classic racing. I mean, look at Portland 1997. They were three wide across the line when Mark Blundell mm-hmm. won, won his first kart race. That was unbelievable. So, you know, I'm not saying obviously every race was like that from that era, but my point is you mm-hmm. can have fast cars, but you know, with sufficient lack of dirty air to make racing possible. And I think King's absolutely right. The DW12 was a great base platform to work from. And it's almost like we've now opened Pandora's box. People are looking for that outright speed at the cost of raceability. And so far we've had issues like excessive debris, you know, parts coming off easily, you know, speeds on some of the shorter ovals where they're using the road course high downforce aero kits to be just way too fast to be competitive and just sheer dirty air problems with race i mean the long beach race went by it felt like it was five minutes it just went bing, and there it is the race was over no wonder some of the drivers saying look we need to make this thing longer if we're going this fast in the race a two-stop 80 lap long beach race just ain't cutting it it just went by like a flash it, it didn't help. There was no caution. Like, it was the first. It was, it was the first Long Beach race, I, I believe, in 27 years that that was caution free. It was the first cautionless Long Beach Grand Prix since 19. I think it was 1989 was the last time that there, there was a caution free Long Beach. So, again, it was over in what barely an hour and a half, um, which is again average F1 speed, which is not what IndyCar is. IndyCar tends to have two to three hour races normally, especially on the bigger oval track. So for that time it happened is again it was over in a flash. Next thing you know, I'm getting ready for bed. Um, so yeah, overall I think there's definitely a, a lot of um, negative air in the air. Pardon the pun there regarding IndyCar's aero kits, and I think something may have to be done soon because again the the voices like it was willpower at first a few months ago who said you know we should have more power in the cars and less downforce, and now we've had multiple big prominent drivers in the series come out and say, yeah, this, this kit might be a problem. And again, something may need to be done about it. So yeah, that is a thing. And I'm just about going to wrap the show up there, believe it or not. I'm going to save the esports discussion for next week. Cause I think, I think there's a lot of potential in that and I want to save it for next week. Um, as ever, you can follow all the three of us on Twitter. Um, um, um well, call me Adam Johnson at AJ underscore bomber sports, Ryan King at Ryan, Eric King, and me at Harrison101HD. You can also check us out on YouTube for highlights and exclusive content every once in a while as well on youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. And if you really like us, why not back us on Patreon at patreon.com again forward slash motorsport101. Of course, we are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn as well. So you really have no excuse not to listen to us and adore us to your heart's content. (laughs) So until next week's episode... I've been Andre Harrison. He's been Adam Johnson and Ryan King. I'll catch you guys next time. Sayonara.
Oh God, I'm just imagining the esports episode next week. Just starting off, I'm not a Cody's guy. I'm not an iRacing guy. <laughs> I'm the guy. 